This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm joined again by Lara Adler, who is a self-proclaimed environmental toxins nerd. She joined us earlier last year for episode 159. We dove deep into the link between chemical exposures and weight gain, as well as other hormonal imbalances. And today I asked her to come back. I think it's really so incredibly important to talk about the impact of the quality of our water on our health. We dove deep into the scope of the issue, issues surrounding both regulation and water contamination, the impact of a crumbling water infrastructure here in the United States, differences in geography and its impact on our exposures to specific types of pesticides and industrial toxins, how our water is disinfected with not only chloramine as well as fluoride, the impact of biological contaminants, which thankfully are not as much of an issue here in the United States, the role of the industry and government, the impact of climate change and pollution, the need for understanding water quality reports for each one of our homes, how mycoplastics can impact our health and longevity, the role of bottled water, the use of water filters, and her favorite environmental health books, bottles, and reverse osmosis. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. Well, Lara, it's always a pleasure to connect with you. It's good to have you back again. How are your holidays? Uh, pretty chill. I like them that way. So I'm happy to move through the holiday season without the stress and anxiety that a lot of people often have during that time. So yes, we actually went away. We went somewhere warm. We weren't around yeah. a lot of other humans. I highly recommend it. It was very therapeutic. <laughs> I think it's all good. Yeah. But in light of the fact that I wanted to bring you back on, because there've been so many questions about water, you know, yeah. the scope of the issue around water, the scope of contamination, you know, you really do a beautiful job with your content. And I thought I could not think of any better person than I wanted to come on and really dive into, you know, what has gone on with the lack of regulation. Obviously silent spring might've started the discussion 50, 60 years ago, yeah. but when we're really looking at the scope of the problem, even now, even in, you know, 2022, hard to believe uh, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that that book came out where do things kind of stem from? What were the concerns for the benefit of the listeners? What were the concerns that were expressed in this book that kind of got the tide changing in terms of government looking a little more closely at things we were exposed to contaminants, environmental pollutants, et cetera, that were brought up in this book that I really think about is, is really changing the trajectory of looking at uh, how water can be a benefit and can also be profoundly detrimental as well. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, a, a seminal work in this whole conversation. Uh, Rachel Carson's 1962 Silent Spring is credited with kind of launching what we now know as this environmental movement. And she really made an incredibly strong and highly, highly referenced act scientific a chronicle, if you will, but delivered in this like prose. She was a beautiful writer that really detailed the connection between pesticides that we put on our agricultural crops 
and how that affects wildlife and then ultimately how that can in turn affect us. And so she was kind of probably, I would say, one of the first to make that connection, this sort of skipped connection. Like it's not just the agricultural use and then us, it's that it's passing through wildlife and they're being effective and and the potential for us also being affected is significant. And that really did put a spotlight on a conversation that people weren't really having at that time. And it really, you know, DDT was the chemical that she really focuses on a lot in that book. It's not the only one that she talks about. And her research and the writing and publishing of that book is ultimately what led to the phase out of DDT. So it was like a pretty big deal. And it's definitely one of those books that you can read now. And a lot of her quotes, a lot of the things that she says in there can ring just as loudly and just as true today as they did in the 1960s. And that's kind of heartbreaking to me to think like, you know, we've advanced so much. We understand so much more about environmental chemicals and their fate in the environment and how they can kind of cycle back to us and, you know, chemicals and consumer products and how they affect us. And yet we haven't really progressed too much in the way that we regulate chemicals. And certainly water is one of the places where we have really poor regulations here in the United States. There's millions of uh, pounds of industrial chemicals that are legally dumped into our waterways every year because there is no regulation on the amount of chemical that can be present in the water systems. And so if there's no limit that's set, companies can dump kind of with impunity, like they don't care and there's no fine and there's it's legal. And that's a huge problem, right? So we, I think with the conversation of water and like drinking water and tap water, you know, I think we have to put it into perspective. So there are plenty of developing countries around the world that have communicable diseases that are transmitted through water. So like, we don't really have that problem. And we don't have that problem because of modernization and, you know, disinfection and different treatments. And so in some ways, like, yeah, sure, water is a lot better than in other places. But just because we don't have communicable diseases like typhoid and dysentery and cholera in our water, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily better. It's just different. We have different set of problems in industrialized nations with our water quality. And that's why I'm such a big advocate and pretty vocal about talking about this topic because people assume that their water is good because you live in America. And that is not good is relative as a very subjective term. So yeah, it's a, it's a big topic. Well, and I, I think having had the opportunity to travel outside the United States in the past year, I was in Rwanda and then I was in Tanzania in September with my husband. And I was pretty impressed with Rwanda's focus. I mean, it, it's probably the cleanest country I've ever visited in my entire life. Yeah. And the Rwandan people are absolutely lovely and so committed to ensuring that they remain happy, healthy, committed to supporting one another. I mean, they spend one day out of the month, you know, pre-pandemic cleaning. I mean, literally yeah. cleaning outside, like even the president will go out and pick up trash and garbage. So they're very committed, but people travel miles to get water. Yeah. They're these little yellow jugs. And so I kept saying to my husband, you know, when we think about the fact I have teenage boys, 
And sometimes the shower runs a long time. And oftentimes it's not because the child is in the shower. It's because they turn it on. They go downstairs to get something. They come upstairs, they get distracted by their phone. And I've tried to explain to them, you know, such a valuable commodity. And yet it's oftentimes not appreciated and valued. And so I think, you know, kind of starting the conversation from there and saying, yes, we assume being in the United States or in a westernized country that the water that we have available to us is clean, it's free of contaminants, it's free of cancer or carcinogenic type things, it's free of plastics, it's free of hormones. Through the conversation (laughs) today, we will definitely touch on all of these areas. But one thing I found really interesting when I was going through some of your material and really looking at, you know, accident in past, you know, the EPA was developed in the 19, early 1970, yep. They had the safe drinking water act. And then we kind of assume someone else is looking out for our best interests. And I'll be the first person to say, never assume, never assume that a governmental regulating agency is focused more on your health than they are on in some instances, being affiliated with big ag and corporations that are giving them a lot of money to be quiet about things that are not properly regulated. So when we're thinking about big things that we should be conscientious or concerned about, the things that kind of stood out for me were, as you mentioned, agricultural pesticides, obviously, depending on where you live in the country, pharmaceuticals. And I want everyone to think about this. We don't think about this enough. I, as a prescribing provider didn't think about this a whole lot until I kind of read some of your material and said, okay, how many women are on oral contraceptives? How many people are taking synthetic or antidepressants in the water? There's antibiotics in the water. I mean, we have to think that when we take these medications, our bodies don't utilize all of it. And when they metabolize in our livers and they get, you know, we pee them out, we're peeing out. If you're taking birth control, you're peeing out those estrogen, you know, estradiols or whatever. And, you know, those molecules are incredibly tiny. And so our water treatment um, plants that process our water and clean our water, like they don't often have the capacity to filter those out. And so they kind of re just recirculate constantly in the water system. And, you know, we don't, I mean, this is the challenge with a lot of, especially when it comes to pharmaceuticals is like, we don't have data that I'm aware of, of the direct implications for human health on that. Can we make an educated guess that like, Hey, if we're taking micro doses of antibiotics every day, unknowingly in our drinking water or antidepressants or, you know, whatever it is, that might be a problem. I think it's not a stretch by any means to say like, maybe we don't know if it's a problem hundred percent, but like, it can't be good that they're in there. Like there can't be a net positive benefit for everyone that that's there. And, you know, I think there was a university study years ago that was actually looking at Um, they'd created some framework or formula to predict how many drug users there were in in their community based on the residues of narcotics in the water supply. So like they could extrapolate like, you know, the average user is going to do this. They're going to pee out this much. Let's do some big math, figure that out. And then we can say, hey, there's, you know, maybe 3000 people that are using crystal meth or cocaine or whatever, or heroin in the system in this community. And so, you know, I'm not suggesting that those are the biggest concerns. I would say those are actually probably quite low on the totem pole of, or the priority list, I should say, of, you know, what we're being exposed to in our drinking water. You know, and I think the thing that 
is challenging for people to kind of grasp. And I actually am getting ready to release a video that actually walks through my own water uh, water testing report is that everyone's water is different. Mm -hmm. Everyone's water has a different set of challenges. And this is where in the sort of influencer social media space, I have a bone to pick with folks that are like, this is the water filter you should get because they're affiliates for that brand. I'm an affiliate for a lot of products, but like I don't actually promote specific water filtration systems on purpose because I don't know if it's the right filter for you because I don't know what's in your water. And there's so many different variables that can determine the thumbprint, so to speak, of your contaminant profile. I moved from the Pacific Northwest in Oregon to New Mexico. My water is totally different, completely different, and requires some specialized filtration because of how different it is. And so, you know, I think this is like a lot of things, we're looking for the easy button. We're looking to just like go into Costco or Home Depot or Target and just like buy a filter off the shelf. To me, that's a yes and. Anything is better than nothing, but we don't know if it's actually doing the thing that we need it to. I think that's an important distinction. You know, much like I always say, you know, bioindividuality rules, well, all of our water might be very different. I have a good friend who left the Washington, D.C. area and said the water was better in Northern Virginia than it is where she is in San Diego. And I was shocked. So are there areas of the country where you feel like municipalities or certain cities are kind of leading the way in terms of looking at whether it's, you know, advanced filtration systems? Obviously, there are examples on the opposite end of the spectrum. There are tragic examples. You know, I used to try, lived and trained in Baltimore and there were issues with lead pipes and, you know, just people were exposed to so many things just living in, you know, older communities. And so I'm curious if you feel like there are any communities that are kind of on your radar or parts of the country where people are doing an exceptionally good job. Not really. I think, you know, this is another, you know, this sort of slides into another facet of this conversation, which is, you know, first of all, I'll say this, our water infrastructure in the United States is old, is very old. So our water treatment plants typically have, you know, 30 or 40 year lifespan. We're at a point in time when the majority of our water treatment plants have surpassed their useful life. They were built decades ago and they don't have the capacity to filter out PFAS and microplastics and herbicides and pests. Like they don't have, they weren't designed for that. And so one, we have this problem where we have like an entire nationwide system that is in desperate need of a major economic, you know, injection of cash to overflow, overhaul this system. The American Society of Civil Engineers, which is the organization that like rates our nation's infrastructure, like it rates our roads and our bridges, they give our water infrastructure like a C or a C minus, and that's up from like a D. Like it's been in the C, D range for the decade that I've been doing this work. And it's going to cost billions of dollars to overhaul that. So first, we have a crumbling infrastructure. There are certainly some parts of the country, um, I think this is far less common, but they still have pipes in the city that date back to the Civil War, right? These are old, old systems. Biden actually just, um, I don't know what the outcome of this was, but there was discussion of, you know, identifying and replacing lead pipes. There's millions of miles of lead pipes still in this country, all around the country. And we don't actually know because there was no requirement for record keeping of like, which street has a lead pipe? 
which street doesn't. And so we've got millions of miles of lead piping, you know, in our water uh, delivery system that should probably be replaced. So to your question though, about like, are some places doing it better than others? Yes, those places are more affluent. So places that are more affluent have the resources to build multi-million dollar state-of-the-art water treatment facilities. That's great. Would love to see more of that. But what we also see on the other end of the spectrum is that uh, marginalized communities, low-income communities often have the worst. Not only do they have more industry situated in their communities, so that means more pollution on its own, they also don't often have the resources to modernize their water treatment and water distribution systems. So they kind of have this double layer of, you know, this not ideal situation. And so the thing that makes the difference between a better water system and a not better water system is money in money and motivation to prioritize water versus putting in a new stadium or doing whatever else you're going to do with your city resources. Certainly not a sexy topic, but it's it's an important topic. And, you know, one thing that I think is really, really important for people to understand is that we have crumbling infrastructure combined with a degree of apathy, perhaps by politicians to really tackle the hard discussions because, I'm sure in many ways they're thinking about revenue and yes, bringing the new stadium in or bringing in a new airport is going to generate more money for the area that people live within. And it was interesting to me that, you know, just the differences in geography in terms of if you're in, you know, part of the country where you have a lot of livestock or crops being maintained, the pesticide residue and things that you're exposed to are very different than someone perhaps who lives on the coast Versus, as you mentioned, you know, these urban areas, you know, certainly for me, having been a suburban girl my entire life, living in Baltimore was the best thing I could have ever done because it shook me outside of my comfort zone yeah. and forced me to really see the way that my patients lived. It was a requirement of both programs that I did that we had to do a lot of community outreach. And my discomfort was minimal compared to how these people were living. And I think about lead levels that we used to draw on children. This almost makes me cry when I think about this now being a parent myself, the lead levels that we drew on children that were going to permanently impact their neurologic function for the rest of their lives. And they were young. And, you know, if it wasn't lead paint, it was, you know, other contaminants that were found in their water supply that was impacting them neurologically, cognitively. So this really is a problem for all of us to be concerned about, but I love that you are encouraging, and obviously we'll dive deeper into this, testing your water to know exactly what you need to be doing because the blanket one size fits all recommendation as it pertains to protecting our water, or, you know, improving our water could be very different. You take a cross section of the population. It could be very different for every single person. So I love yeah. that you're honoring that individuality portion as opposed to just saying this Berkey filter is what everyone right. needs to use. And I'm going to live and die on my Berkey. Right. It's was- fine. And people are obsessed with their Berkeys. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't think that they should be frankly. And, you know, I think there's other factors aside from efficacy of removing contaminants. Like I, for, you know, nine years lived in like a 600 square foot, one bedroom apartment in New York city. And I had 24 inches of counter space 
Like that was, I had a tiny little kitchen. I mean, it's a great place, but like a tiny little, I had the kind of kitchen where like, if you went to open the oven door, it would hit the fridge door. So you'd have to open the fridge in order to open the oven. Like I had that situation for nine years. That's wonderful. But people at the time, even then were like, oh, you should get a Berkey. I'm like, where am I going to put a Berkey? I don't have countertop space. I don't, I literally have, I mean, if you're in an efficiency apartment like that, you, every nook and cranny under the couch, under the bed, everything is storage. And so, you know, there's other factors to consider as well. Convenience, whether or not they rely on electricity, whether or not you have the space, whether or not you have the money. Like, sure, there's certain filters that I think are exceptionally good filters that will remove a large portion of most of the questionable contaminants, but they're like five or $600. And it's not... That's not helpful for me to be making blanket recommendation when maybe all somebody needs is a basic carbon filter that would cost them hundred bucks. So oh. I don't like, I'm, I'm sensitive to making sure that, and not just within water, but within all facets of this conversation around environmental health is like accessibility and not positioning, addressing environmental exposures as being something only for those who are affluent. It's an exclusionary way to have the conversation that I kind of take. I have a bone to pick with that type of delivery of this information. So I'm very sensitive to that, uh, making it accessible. And that's hard. I mean, I had a conversation with a prospective student just recently and she had taken, I have a course on water. She took the course. She's working in a low-income community and she's like, how do I bring this information to them? And I'm like, that's really hard like because it costs money the interventions all cost money. And so this is where I think we have this kind of, we take this dual prong approach. We're like, sure. Yeah. Let's learn about how to deal with our individual water, but let's also at the same time, be vocal about demanding better practices from our water utilities, from our federal regulations as they pertain to water. It's not you know, and there are some people, look, I live in New Mexico. The majority of New Mexico is reservation land. There are some people here who turn on the tap water and their water is brown, like it's mud brown, right? So like we have a big problem. And then just because your water looks clean and smells clean and it tastes good, doesn't mean it's not problematic. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have people that like literally can't drink the water or people who live near hydrofracking operations and their water, you can set their water on fire because it has so many flammable um, gas components in it. So like we have the whole spectrum here. So I think again, going back to the like assumption that just because we don't have communicable diseases that our water is great you know, the, under the Safe Drinking Water Act, the EPA only regulates around 90 contaminants. There are hundreds that have been measured. And just because a contaminant is regulated doesn't mean that it's not showing up in excess in our water systems. This was a couple of years ago, but there was an analysis that found that like 77 million Americans are drinking water that violates the Safe Drinking Water Act. So just because a chemical is regulated doesn't mean that you're not still in violation. And the levels that the EPA sets under the Safe Drinking Water Act, and this sort of ties into to this economic conversation, those are not health standards. So first of all, anybody in the United States, and I don't know if this is available outside, everybody does it differently, 
In the United States, your water utility is legally required to produce a water quality report. Sometimes it's referred to as a consumer confidence report or CCR. They're legally required to produce these every year. They don't always do that. My city, for example, on the link that says 2021 is 2020s report. Even though the file name is 2021, it's literally 2020's report. I don't know if that was a mistake or not, but either way. And so these water quality reports are produced by your water utility. And it tells you information about your water, it tells you where your water comes from. Does it come from an aquifer? Is it a surface water? Is it groundwater? You know, they usually draw a little map. I guess it depends on how much money your community has. I've seen some really basic like one sheets, just text and a table with numbers. And people are like, I don't know what I'm looking at. And then I've seen these like beautifully designed ones, right? And so, you know, that have graphics and illustrations, but those reports will tell you a little bit about your water, where it comes from, what it's treated with, what are the levels that are tested and monitored? What's the lowest, the average level, what's the highest level? And they're looking, they're kind of, their benchmark that they're using is the federal, it's called the maximum contaminant level, the MCL. And the MCL is that regulation threshold level, where if you exceed that level, that's in violation of the federal drinking water standards for that particular contaminant. The problem is that maximum contaminant level number is not a health standard. It is a negotiation between what public health experts would like to see and what the federal government feels is feasible to impose on all utilities across the country. So if they have to factor in that economic, like what's realistic, we can't tell everyone that the level of lead has to be zero because we know a lot of municipalities, millions of them don't have the funds. They don't have the resources to be able to meet the standard. And so it's a negotiation, but people think it's a health standard. So for example, on my water quality report, if we look at all of the levels that have been measured at the utility. So these are not measured at my house. They're measured at the utility. Next to every single one, there's a little green check mark that says safe to drink per the EPA. But that's, it's not, it's not a safety standard. It's just what the, it's just the regulatory standard. And, you know, that's incredibly misleading. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of contaminants. Well, and I think many, many people, much to the point we assume what's in the grocery store is safe to eat, nutrient dense. I would argue most of what we find in the grocery store. And, and this could also you know, apply to chemicals you're exposed to that you bring into your home, et cetera. Now you touched on some terminology that people may not be as familiarized with. So when we're talking about groundwater versus surface water. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think on many levels, when people are looking at these reports, trying to decipher, depending on where they live in their municipalities, and certainly if you do nothing else after listening to my discussion with Lara, go get your water tested. Yeah, just Google yeah. your city name, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, water quality report, and then year. They usually come out in the summer or late summer. So if you're looking, you know, early in the year, your years live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you're going to be looking in 2020 <laughs> because that was what's available. Yeah. So please, everybody go look up your water quality report. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause 
is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Now, because I, I think when we're kind of differentiating between like ground versus surface water, it can be impacted by different types yeah. of environmental slash 
you know, microorganisms and for full disclosure, and I didn't share this with Lara before we started recording. I just recently had a bunch of diagnostic testing done. I knew something was wrong. And I believe when I was probably outside the country in September, I picked up a couple parasites. And yeah. so even if you're in places where the water has been termed that it's potable, you can drink it, it's safe. Sometimes it's actually not. And yeah, so the absolutely. process is I picked it up while I was outside the United States, but different types of microorganisms can be indigenous to where you live. They yep. can be indigenous to where you live outside the United States. Sure. And so being really clear that different types of water can expose us to different types of chemicals, microorganisms, contaminants, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, this is where, you know, as a kid, I traveled internationally a lot and, you know, people in Bangladesh or in Delhi, like they can drink the water because their gut is attuned to the microorganisms that are present there. And then we come and drink the water and, you know, we have traveler's diarrhea is what they call it. A little unpleasant, but because it's, you know, our bodies are just not attuned to that. But to your question about like the sort of geography and the difference between groundwater and surface water, you know, they're pretty self-explanatory in that groundwater is an underground aquifer and surface water is usually a lake or a reservoir where water is pulled from. Um, and these are some of the things that can determine how our water is different. But, you know, if we have an underground aquifer, provided that aquifer is deep and it doesn't, is not contaminated because those can become contaminated, that water tends to be lower in things like pesticides or industrial contaminants because it can take so long or be impossible for chemicals to move through that sort of earth substrate to get that low into the geography to get into that groundwater system. Not always. Some groundwater, some aquifers are, are quite shallow. Some groundwater aquifers are contaminated, but generally speaking, they have less of those contaminants. But what they can have is more minerals. So this is where we have, for example, deposits of fluorine. So this is where we often see high levels of fluoride in water, not because it's, at, it's in the geography of the area where your aquifer is. This also might be why we have some metals. This is also why we see radioactives. Things like arsenic are coming from those mineral deposits or metal deposits. And so if you have groundwater, you maybe have a likely, a higher likelihood of having those type of contaminants. If you have surface water, that's where we have a greater likelihood of pesticides, um, depending on your geography or you're in a rural or an urban area of industrial pollutants, of microorganisms, you know, if you have, if you live in an agricultural area and there's animal husbandry, animal farming, cattle farming or whatever, and you've got, you know, their ponds where they take their manure and they, you know, let them sit in these ponds and then you get nitrates that seep into the groundwater. So there's like, this is why everyone's water is different, right? Like, so there's hundreds of variables that can determine that thumbprint. So everybody's water is different and everybody's water treatment it's, it has to match, you know, it's going to be unique. That's my big point there. What has been your experience when we're talking about biological contaminants? You know, this is actually how I probably got sick outside the United States, but what are the more common waterborne contaminants that you've, you know, seen either in reports or your experience, you know, working with your students, what are the more common things you see here in the United States? I actually haven't seen 
Yeah, because we disinfect our water and that has pros and cons, right? The pros are that we don't, I mean, I'm sure in some instances, yes, there are going to always be exceptions for people that are on wells that are not regulated by the city, especially if that well is a shallow well um, or and or in an agricultural area, there's a higher likelihood of microbial contamination, whether that's an E. coli um, or something like that. Certainly we have, I think actually where this conversation is more relevant is less in city water and more in in this trend that people have towards drinking what's called raw water. Yeah, your face says it all. Yeah, so there's a trend. It is a small trend, thankfully. There is some person, I don't know if he's still doing this business. The Daily Show quite a while ago did like a whole thing on it. And I was like laughing and slapping my desk. I was like, ha I know. I read the articles about that guy years ago. So he, you know, he's this, I don't know, Southern California mountain hippie guy who makes these really expensive glass jugs that have sacred geometry emblazoned on them. Like it's very woo woo. And he has what he calls raw water. It is unfiltered, untreated water. And he sells it for like $26 a gallon or something absolutely astronomical, like laughable. I mean, I pay 29 cents a gallon for filtered water at the grocery store. So like it's revolting consumerism is what it is. But there is a trend for people who really want to drink what they call spring water. And they just assume because it's coming from a natural spring that it's like pure and pristine. And that is just not the case. And so if you have, whether it's a beaver dam or a hunting range or wildlife that crosses anywhere upstream at any point, and they have waste in the water or whatever, you have no guarantee that there is not teeming with bacteria that can make people sick. And so that trend for people to drink untreated spring water, thats not, if the spring is monitored regularly and is consistently shown to not have any microbial contamination, a little bit more comfortable with that. But I just, thankfully, this is a small trend, but I just I cringe. I make the face that you made when you say <laughs> raw water. And I'm like, no. Yeah. No, no, no thank you. It, what's interesting is that I've had quite a few women that have come up positive for Giardia on yeah. stool testing. And so I've had to ask, do you have a well? And almost always they do. And so yeah. if you have a well, don't panic, get your water yeah. tested, really reasonable. Yeah. The raw water concept is Although just I, I respect the creativity, but no, I don't even mass. respect that creativity. No. No, that is, nice. Yeah. It's interesting. We were just, we went away for the holidays and we were hiking in this park and our wonderful guide was explaining that certain animals will defecate urinate in certain springs. And so he's explained like, don't ever drink the water while you're in this big national park. And, you know, none of us had any desire to do this, but he was saying, occasionally I get people who are thirsty by the time they get to this point. And I always remind them, you're like one step away from taper urine or taper poo or whatever other animal has defecated or urinated in the water supply. I'm like, yeah, I think that's a hard pass. Yeah. Hard. I mean, this is where, (laughs) 
this is where, you know, and anybody who's an outdoor enthusiast, a camper, backpacker, like we all know you can go to REI and get your water, you know, whether it's an iodine treatment or um, a SteriPen, there's sterilization pens, there's life straw, there's all kinds of tools that people can use to make that water safer to drink. But those type of treatments are typically only targeting those Giardia or Cryptosporidium or something like that. Those microorganisms, they're not looking at whether or not there's industrial chemicals in there because, you know, again, I think, look, we have contaminants, chemicals like PFAS uh, compounds that have been measured in snowfall in the Arctic and polar bears in the Arctic, not because there's any manufacturing, but because these molecules, particularly these persistent ones that don't break down, they travel in the air, they travel in the air streams, they travel in precipitation. And so they're everywhere. And so if those molecules can get all the way up to the Arctic, who says that they can't get up to the top of the mountain where your snow melt is, you're feeding your spring, you know, water. So I think that we have to, I think we're, unfortunately, we're past the point in time when we can make the assumption that any of our waterways in the United States are not contaminated. And that's a terrible thing to tie back to our opening conversation of Rachel Carson. Like we've just not been good stewards. We have not. Despite having the information We have not been good stewards. And by we, I would like to point out, it is not consumers that have not been good stewards. It is industry and government that have not been good stewards. So I think in the conversation, whether it's around environmental chemicals or climate change or pollution, there is an intentional orchestrated um, strategy that industries use to push the blame onto the consumer and say, it's your fault. And this is where those like no drinking straw movements, like the plastics industry is like, yeah, great. Everybody go freak out about the drinking straw that has to get yanked from the nose of the sea turtle. And that's pulls at our heartstrings. And so as a consumer, I'm going to say, no, thanks. I don't need a straw, feel good about myself, and then continue to ignore the massive amounts of pollution that's being put out by these, you know, whether it's a a Pepsi or Coca-Cola with their bottling plants and billions and billions of plastic bottles. So like it is an intentional campaign to push the responsibility onto the consumer. And I think that that's part of why we have, we as industry and government have not been good stewards. And yeah. Did you, have you watched the documentary Seaspiracy? I did not watch that. I did not watch that one. Well, so it starts off with the premise of, you know, you're diving down the rabbit hole of thinking the problem is about one thing and it turns into much, much more. It was actually like being an animal advocate and I eat animals. Let me be clear. I'm an animal eater and love animals just the same, but it was a really fascinating foray into really looking at what's driving the plastics that are found in the ocean and how that impacts, you know, sea life. And so if anyone's interested, I I tend to nerd out on documentaries when I travel, I try to find balanced ones, maybe clear about that, but along the same lines that we have not been good stewards, we, as in government and industry have not really been looking out for consumers, animal life, et cetera. But let's pivot a little bit and talk about one of my least favorite chemicals, (laughs) which is fluorine. We relocated to a new part of our state in June and almost instantly there was a very, very strong smell of chlorine when I turned on the faucet. And so my husband 
who tolerates a lot of my idiosyncrasies about these things. We had water delivery the entire time we lived in this very small condo while we were still waiting for our house to be finished. And every time we turn on the water, it was such a strong smell of chlorine. And the water didn't even, when you would boil water, it just never looked the same. And so I just kept saying to my kids, just use the stuff that, I mean, that's not even necessarily a sustainable thing to have water delivered, but the water was such a strong thing. So really thinking about what chlorine, why chlorine is added to the water supply, what it does, how it impacts our gut microbiome, how it impacts this water vapor that we're breathing in. So we don't even think about it. It, It's not a particularly strong smell, but yet we are literally bathing in these chlorinated water. And I think it's helpful for listeners to really understand, you know, with good intention, I think these things were added, but we find out they're not particularly healthy or beneficial. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a yes. And right. So, you know, the reason why I said in the beginning, when you asked about, you know, microorganisms and the bacteria at a school, because we disinfect and chlorine is the primary disinfectant that we use in our water systems here. And, you know, the world health organization says that this is a hail water fluoridation is one of the greatest advancements in public health. And in a lot of ways it was right. Like we wiped out typhoid, dysentery, cholera, like all of these really terrible um, communicable diseases just by chlorinating the water. And there's a price for that, right? Like nothing comes for free, especially if these things are not thought out well, I should say it that way. (laughs) And so, you know, water chlorination, I think, or I should say it this way, disinfection of water, I think is important. How we disinfect that water matters. And this is one of those things, while there's an upside, there is also a downside. And the downside is that we have chlorine in our water distribution system. And so, you know, chlorine is there to kill microorganisms. That is its job. It's added at the water utility. And sometimes there's substations along the way where it's added. How close you are in proximity to your water treatment facility or those substations, if they're added there, um, can influence whether or not your water smells like chlorine. I actually have pretty high levels of chlorine in my house. I have a lot of, I have some of the worst water. Happily talk about that if that's of interest, but like it was quite a shock. Anyway, so where you live is, you know, if you live closer to that, you, you may have more of that chlorine. Chlorine is a volatile chemical. That's why you can smell it. I mean, not all volatile chemicals have smell, but like as soon as you turn it on, it's vaporizing, right? This is why, for example, if anybody has amphibians, fish, lizards, whatever, especially fish, it is recommended that you fill a container with water and let it sit for 24 hours before putting it into the tank. Why? So those volatile chemicals can volatize. You're not putting chlorine in the water, which can kill your fish because they're exquisitely sensitive to that. And so, you know, if you're a fish owner, you should intuitively know that like, oh, right. Duh, it's volatile. And so, you know, it's irritating for our skin, for our hair. Certainly we're breathing it in, in the shower because it's vaporizing and we're absorbing it. There's some estimates that 60 to 70% of the chlorine that we take in every day comes from the shower, not from what we're drinking because our full body, mm-hmm. it's hot, our pores open up, absorption increases, we're inhaling it because it's turning to steam. So, you know, there's some downsides. You know, the upshot, and there's very few when it comes to water filtration, chlorine's one of the easiest chemicals to remove. 
it's super easy. You just get an activated carbon filter. It's one of the few things that's like super easy to get rid of consistently. Where things get a little bit more challenging is when cities add ammonia. So chlorine plus ammonia converts to chloramine. And the reason why cities move are, and this is actually a, an intentional move that cities across the United States are switching from chlorine to chloramine because chlorine is super volatile and it smells, has a strong smell. Chloramine doesn't. Also, because chlorine is so volatile, it tends to weaken by the time it gets to the end of the distribution system, right? So as I was saying, it's more concentrated at the front end and on the far end of the distribution system, it kind of peters out in its efficacy. So chloramine is far more stable as a disinfectant. So it stays in the distribution system more evenly for much longer than chlorine. An easy way to tell whether or not you have chlorine or chloramine is one, to look on your water quality report because it will tell you the disinfectant. Does they use chlorine or chlorine and ammonia, sometimes written as chloramine. And the other way that you can tell is to fill your bathtub with water. Chlorine is blue, chloramine is green. When I lived in Oregon, they used chloramine. And so you could tell when you filled up the water with bath, it had like a really faint green hue. In New Mexico and Albuquerque, it's chlorine. And so I can turn on the, fill up my bathtub and I'm like, me, blue, it's chlorine. I mean, like, you know, anyway, so carbon is the easiest way to get rid of chlorine. Chloramine is much harder to get rid of. So that's the downside. Like it stays in the distribution system longer, has better efficacy in terms of being a disinfectant, doesn't have a noticeable smell, but it's much harder to get rid of. So an activated carbon filter, not going to touch it. You need catalytic carbon or some other type of filter media to remove that. This is just a simple example that like what's in your water determines which direction you go in, in terms of filtration. So if you walk into Target or Home Depot and you just pull a Brita off the shelf, well, that's just activated carbon. It might reduce some lead and might get rid of some other contaminants, but it's not going to touch your water if it's got chloramine in it. That's really interesting. And what are your thoughts on fluoride? I, I regularly get into a discussion, polite discussion with the dentist every time my children go in or my husband and I go in and I just say, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Yeah. But I know. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on fluoride. So first (laughs) of all, I have a lot of questions about fluoride. So this is. Yeah. So, I mean, look, fluoride, there's plenty of evidence that shows absolutely without question that topical application of fluoride has shown benefit. There are still risks, but it has shown benefit. And so it's up to the individual to weigh the risks and the benefits of utilizing a topical application. I will come back to alternatives to fluoride for topical dental use in a second, but as it pertains to ingesting fluoride, there is no real evidence to support that ingested fluoride has a meaningful effect on dental caries or cavities. Ingested fluoride is a neurotoxin, Mm -hmm. and there's plenty of evidence that demonstrates that. And so you know, there's a really wonderful book called The Fluoride Deception. I can't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but The Fluoride Deception is an excellent, it reads like a crime novel. I'm talking the Manhattan Project, atomic bombs, the largest steel manufacturers in the United States, Alcoa, like these large kings of industry that ultimately 
turned fluoride into something that was recognized as a hazardous waste into something that like it was a PR campaign to basically turn um, fluoridated drinking water into like this amazing, you know, feat of public health. And this book is, I mean, like I said, it just, it reads like a crime novel. It's incredibly well-cited and documented. And for people who want to understand the history of fluoride and why it's there and why the American Dental Association is so on board still after all of these decades is go read that book. So I don't think water fluoridation, whether it's done intentionally or whether there are natural deposits of fluoride or fluorine, like again, if you have groundwater and there's fluorine in the geography, you're going to have fluoride. It will actually tell you on your water quality report added or deposit erosion of natural deposits. It'll tell you where the source is. Either way, it shouldn't be there. Fluoride is a halogenated compound. Um, it shares space on the periodic table of elements with chlorine and bromine and iodine. And all four of those, well, they all essentially zero in on your thyroid. And what happens is chlorine, bromine, and fluorine and compounds that are made of those, so chlorinated, brominated, or fluorinated compounds compete with iodine for space in your thyroid. And so that's hugely problematic to know about. It's a hugely problematic thing for us to be utilizing chlorinated, brominated, or fluorinated compounds. I just posted the other day on Instagram that New York State just banned halogenated flame retardants from use in electronics. Halogenated meaning all three. They don't care if they're chlorinated flame retardants or brominated or fluorinated, the whole class is problematic. And so in terms of fluoride ingested, to me, it's a hard no. We want to filter that out. We don't need a thyroid suppressing chemical, natural or manufactured in our drinking water. The fluoride that's in your toothpaste, sodium fluoride, is not the same compound that's added to municipal water, which is hydrofluorosicilic acid. Hydrofluorosicilic acid is a waste byproduct from the phosphate fertilizer industry. So this is where industries get together and say, hey, how can we make money off of this thing that we used to have to pay to get rid of? And now we can make money out of it. So that's my hot take on that. Going back to the thumbtack that I had put about alternatives, at least when it comes to oral care and toothpaste, is we do have an alternative. So I said that topical application of fluoride has absolutely shown benefit for dental caries, but there are risks and the risks are exposure to thyroid suppressing chemicals. Our gums are very absorbent. We can absorb that. Kids will swallow, et cetera. So what we have is an alternative called hydroxyapatite, which is a mineral. It's what our teeth are actually made out of. It's been used as an alternative to fluoride in Japan for decades, but it hasn't caught on as extensively here in the United States, partly because the American Dietetic Association still refuses to like acknowledge the benefit. Because it is basically a mineral, the same mineral that our teeth are made out of, it's biocompatible and there are no negative side effects. So multiple studies have shown that hydroxyapatite is just as, if not more effective than fluoride at preventing cavities and remineralizing your teeth with no side effects. So if people are like, just go, just go use hydroxyapatite-based toothpastes, they're out there. 
Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, 
head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. I think it's really interesting on so many levels because this is one of those topics that I feel is there's a degree of cognitive dissonance. Yes. Because my dentist recommends it, therefore it's safe. And I remind people, you know, when I did my functional nutrition training a long time ago, you know, I learned about this dentist back in the early 1900s who really revolutionized the way that we looked at indigenous cultures and their bone structure and their teeth. And so we know there's a direct correlation with dental caries or cavities and the degree of processed foods we're consuming. So on so many levels, if you have a junk food diet, it's not going to save your teeth by using fluoride-based toothpaste, at least not from what I have looked at. And, you know, certainly it's helpful for people to understand there are alternatives to kind of the conventional mindset. And, And I've come to find out that most dentists, both pediatric and otherwise, this isn't the sword they want to die on. You know, they'd rather, they'd rather focus on other areas. And so I feel like things are starting to come around. So I love that you kind of differentiated and shared some alternatives and talking about other things that we get exposed to, you know, we talked about pharmaceuticals, obviously we have a lot of endocrine disrupting chemicals that we get exposed to. We've got kids with precocious puberty. We have the feminization of men because they're aromatizing all their testosterone to estrogen, which is not a good thing. I also think about, you know, we touched on the heavy metal piece, but then also thinking about one of my least favorite topics of conversation, glyphosate and exposure to Roundup, because on a lot of levels, you know, we had Robin O'Brien on and she was talking about, you know, how she was trying to work with farmers to get away from using these types of chemicals, which can be so disruptive to the gut microbiome and to our health. But let's at least touch on what glyphosate does in our bodies, because I got a lot of questions about this and fluoride, people asking, you know, I know this is a known carcinogen. I know this is used to eradicate pests and is an herbicide. How can we protect ourselves? What are some of the choices we can make so that we're protecting our families as much as we can? I mean, obviously you would probably have to go live away on an island all by yourself or your family to get no exposure to some of these things. But I know glyphosate is one that people recognize that name. They understand the association with Monsanto and there's genuine concerns about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think what is so, you know, when there's evidence showing that it disrupts our gut microbiome, that it can lead to leaky gut, it basically acts like an antibiotic in our system, um, meaning it's killing off all of that good and bad bacteria that we have in our GI system, which in and of itself can lead to so many downstream effects. And then anything that's causing an intestinal permeability or leaky gut in and of itself can also lead to a lot of downstream effects like autoimmune conditions. You know, what I think is really interesting, and I haven't seen actual good data on this myself, but in talking to the folks over at TAPSCORE, which is the water testing company that I work with and that I recommend in talking to them, they've shared that they've actually seen extremely low levels of glyphosate in the water that they've tested for like when their customers are testing for that. And so they're like that. And maybe that changes, right? Maybe that's cyclical. Maybe that just, you know, require a, a larger volume of data on their end to kind of pull that together. Certainly not all of the people who are doing testing through them are adding that 
because it's an add-on contaminant to test for. But my hunch is that the primary exposure is going to be through food and for folks that are living in agricultural regions. Um, And also, I would say in urban areas near parks, there are all kinds of um, glyphosate derivative, you know, under different brand names that are used in public parks. And so, you know, I think that's going to be a more significant exposure source than what we're getting in our drinking water. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it, you know, disassociates in water or something like that. I'm not sure. But I think that our primary exposure there is going to be coming from food and drift or, you know, encountering it if you're walking across the lawn where, you know, at the park where it was sprayed or what have you. You know, sometimes, and I think we don't always see this because I'm me, I pay attention. But whenever you see those little flags yes. in the ground, sometimes, most of the time there's no label. It's just like a little pink flag or green flag. Well, that's usually a, they're demarcating where they're going to be applying some kind of treatment. That doesn't automatically mean it's going to be a pesticide. doesn't automatically mean it's going to be glyphosate or a derivative, but just it's something's happening there. And sometimes in addition to the little flags, they'll put a little sign And I usually just take a picture of it and then I go home and I look it up because it gives you the trademarked chemical name or product name. And then, then you can find out, oh, is this a, I mean, it's an organophosphate. Is it a, you know, some other type of family of herbicides and you can kind of look that up. I've only done that a couple of times because I've only seen those signs a couple of times. Usually it's just the flags, but that's where you pick up the phone and you get in touch with the parks department. I think it's appropriate for people to be squeaky wheels and to be advocates for their community and for themselves in this way by asking and posing questions and, and finding out what's being used. If you live near a golf course, atrazine tends to be the herbicide that's used, not glyphosate on those kinds of that kind of landscape. But if you live near a golf course, I grew up from across the street from a golf course and used to sneak out at night and roll around on the hills in the, in the <laughs> grass. I'm sure they didn't like that, but who knows what they were using, mm-hmm. you know, spraying probably at night because it was the only time where they didn't have people on the green. And anybody else like me <laughs> who went and rolled around on the grass in a golf course in the middle of the night in high school. But anyway, so my understanding is that glyphosate is not showing up in in water as much as people maybe think that it is. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. And it, the irony is that we lived for almost 20 years in the golf course community outside of Washington, DC, and whenever they would spray, so they would put those little markers and I always yeah. told them not to spray our grass, not our grass. So I was the crazy woman who would ask. And so when my kids would, and I would walk the dogs if we saw the flags, I would say we have to walk. We would like sometimes walk outside the community to walk our dogs so that we have less than the likelihood. You know, my superpower is that I have this ridiculously pungent sense of smell. I mean, it yeah. benefited me enormously being an ER nurse. I could always sniff out the diabetics and yeah. other things, but it also means when people spray their yards, yeah. I smell it so much more than the average person. It actually bothers me a lot. And so yeah. my kids are always like, mom, you're so embarrassing. But you know, I would say, listen, if it's that strong, then it's, it just went down and you have to sometimes, well, now talking about, you know, surface water, pray it would rain because then it would dissipate it. But sometimes you would have days where it, you just knew you were walking around in a chemical yeah. fog, which is just really yeah. disgusting and that much worse for our animals and children who are smaller humans. Now, I think I would be remiss if we didn't at least end our conversation talking about microplastics, because I, yes. I think 
this is something that a lot of people don't fully understand. They don't understand what it represents. But to me, it's something, the more I, it's like, the more I learn, the more I can't unlearn, the more I want to change things that go on in the world to ensure that we're exposed less to these. So I would love for you to kind of touch on what these are, why we need to be concerned about them, how we can lessen our exposure. I mean, it's not possible to be completely rid of it unless you, again, live on an island in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But even I was surprised even though like washing synthetic clothing in your washing machine can expose you to microplastics. It's like, we can't get away. Well, from I mean, it. I think wearing pl- like synthetic. So first of all, microfibers are not always microplastics and microplastics aren't always microfibers either. So our cotton clothes and wool clothes releases microfibers as too. Those ones are less concerning than the plastic ones. So when we're wearing acrylic or polyester clothes, right, which is most clothes these days, you're hard pressed to find things that are hundred percent cotton, right? You're playing, paying a premium for those. Those all shed these little tiny plastic fibers and those microfibers are so microscopic that they almost never get filtered out. And so there's just microplastics in our water system. They're just there. And until from a municipality standpoint, we're able to use fine enough filtration that will remove them, meaning very good block carbon or reverse osmosis that will remove those. Most cities don't use that. Some do then we'll just have water microplastics in our water period. This also means that we have microplastics in our food. Why? Because we're using water in the manufacturing of our processed foods. doesn't matter if it's a cake or a soup or a soda, or if it's organic or not, unless that food producer is filtering the water well for production there's just microplastics in everything. There's microplastics in bottled water. And so, you know, the plastic is, there's two kind of layers of concern. And I think the, the second one is the bigger concern. And then there's a lot of like, we just don't know because we just, we're only just starting to dig into this. There's only just been research showing that there's microplastics in, in the fetal environment and, you know, babies have microplastics while they're in exposure, while in utero. So we know that we all have microplastics in us. We don't necessarily know what the implications of that are. Probably not good, right? Probably not good, but we don't actually know what that means because we've just discovered that they're there. So give us another couple of years, maybe a decade, and we can make associations in the data that say, hey, for people that have this amount of microplastics in their system, they there's associations with these outcomes. You know, that's basically how we're gonna be able to navigate the data on that. So there's the microplastics themselves, which, you know, whether, you know, if they're fibers, they're polyesters, they're acrylic, I don't know what chemicals are, used to manufacture those types of plastics. So maybe there's endocrine disruptors, maybe there's not. Certainly if there's microplastics that are coming, not from our clothing, but from just the breakdown of other, you know, plastic products in commerce, then we might have plastics that have BPA or plastics that have phthalates. Those are endocrine disrupting, that's concerning. But the bigger problem, and we see this in the science around like ocean microplastics, is that these plastics become sponges for other contaminants. So other contaminants are like, hey, look at that thing. Let's go glom onto it like a life raft. And so they literally become these magnets for other contaminants in the water to attach to. 
Now, I know there were a couple like short answer questions. Women in one of my monthly groups, they wanted to know what is your personal favorite? Just take the whole filtration piece out of it. Do you have a particular type of water bottle that you like to bring with you when you're traveling? It doesn't have to be, it can be just leaving your house and going to the store. Doesn't it be like you're going on an airplane and leaving the country? But what is your favorite brand of water bottle and why? Do you prefer glass? Um, Do you like stainless steel? I figure, and this, they said, this is your personal choice. There's no, yes. you know, what it is depends. your personal favorite? So if I'm just driving in the car, it's usually a mason jar. I actually, there's a company I discovered many years ago, probably nine years ago, called Eco Jars, okay. E-C-O-J-A-R-Z. And they make these stainless steel coffee cup style lids that you can screw on to a mason jar. And so it just means that, you know, if you're driving, you're literally not spilling the contents mm-hmm. of your entire mason jar all over your face. You just have a little sippy cup hole to drink <laughs> out of. So it's a little bit more contained. So if I'm just driving around, it's that. I am a mason jar girl through and through. If I'm traveling, what I usually do is I have a big stainless steel. I don't remember even who makes it. I bought it at Whole Foods. It was pretty. I just have a big, I think it's a 32 ounce bottle. So I take that with me. Here's my hack for traveling. Obviously I love it when airports have those filtered water, water fountains. Those are the best, those refilling stations for bottles. They don't always, what I always do before I leave the house is I take a couple lemon slices and I put them in my empty bottle. It makes the water taste better. Even if the water tastes a little bad. (laughs) So like I say this because, you know, there have been times where I'm like, look, I, While I would love to have filtered water all the time, it's not always possible. I get very dehydrated in airplanes, so I drink a lot of water. And there have been many times where I forgot my water bottle at home. I ran out of water. They didn't have a thing. And I'll just go buy a plastic bottle. Is it ideal? No. Do I like it? No. But I also really hate being dehydrated and the consequences of that. So I would rather... You know, what I remind people is it's what we do every day that matters, not what we do every once in a while. So I think that any opportunity that we can have to kind of let people know that this is not a zero sum game, it's not all or nothing. It's not about being hundred percent non-toxic. It's just about doing the best that we can. And sometimes we have to loosen our requirements when we're traveling. Well, I love the good, better, best mentality. It's obviously something I embrace myself. What are the one or two books if someone is just fairly new to following you and hearing this information that you feel like are good starting points if women are interested in just the very, like dipping their toe in the pond about awareness? Um, Not specifically about water, but there is a really book on Slow Death by Robert Buck that I think is a good soft intro into this topic. It'll probably blow people's hair back if they're new to this topic, but it's just two guys who decided to like learn about all these environmental exposures. They actually exposed themselves, locked themselves in a room, sprayed a bunch of perfume and cologne, did urine testing before and after, ate a bunch of canned food, did urine testing before and after. So it's a very accessible sort of real life um, dive. It's a well-cited book. It's well-written. So Slow Death by Rubber Duck is probably the easiest intro. If somebody's looking for something a little bit, that book is, has some humor in it, but if there's something, uh, the topic tends to be a little dry, go read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. It is prose. It's heartbreaking, but it is prose. It's beautifully written. She is a wonderful writer. So she just has a, had a very poetic way of talking about these 
heartbreakingly devastating topics. So, and then I have a whole collection of recommended reading on my website that people can check out just on the page on books, specifically just on books. I can totally nerd out on reading. So I, I purchased both those books, read them both. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Last question. Yeah. There are a lot of people that have purchased reverse osmosis systems for their yeah. homes. They know they need to add in minerals. Should they, so where is a good starting point? Because what I've come to find out is a lot of women come to me, they've already installed a reverse osmosis filtration, and then they don't realize they need to add back in mm-hmm. some of these minerals. What is the easiest way to go, go around this? Because they find this is so overwhelming. They're like, I thought I was doing a good thing. Now I'm being yeah. told I need minerals again. So how yeah. do we navigate that again? For everyone listening, test your water to find yeah. out what you need to filter out. That's the prevailing kind of you know, theme throughout this conversation. But for those that have reverse osmosis in their homes, the need to add back in minerals, what are your general recommendations or guidance on this? Yeah, I mean, first of all, some filtration, some RO systems actually have a stage, a final stage that does this. If yours does that, great. Just make sure that you replace it. Um, You can also buy, you know, trace minerals. There's a company called Trace Minerals. They make that. You can also do like Quinton Hypertonic. That's a little bit more expensive. So there's those kinds of mineral replacements. My hot take on those though, and this is my personal take, is that the amount of the recommended amount, like 40 drops, is way overboard, right? So We know that the amount of minerals that we get from our water is negligible. It's small. It's not important though, right? Because when we remove minerals from water, we can make what's called aggressive water where our water is trying to seek equilibrium. RO water can be hard on your pipes. It can actually pull minerals and metals from your pipes. We don't want that. And there is some evidence that suggests that the drinking of demineralized water is not good for us, even though primary source of minerals coming from our food, right? And our mineral content in our food is decreased because of soil erosion, because of overfarming practices. So the minerals that we used to get decades ago from our foods, we're not getting them at that level from our foods anymore, um, which is probably why we're starting to see like mineral depletion in the population. We eat a lot of processed foods that don't have minerals. Like, and so even though the amount that we have in our water is very, very small, it's still important. So when we have these remineralization drops and they're like, add 40 drops, the water is so minerally that I feel like people won't drink it because it tastes so bad. It tastes horrendous to me personally. And so I'm okay with just adding one or two drops because I know I don't need to have that much from my water because I know I'm getting some from other places. That makes sense. So I feel that they overdo it with the recommendation for how many drops, probably because they're like, oh, people will run out in 30 days and they'll need to buy another one. I don't think we need that many minerals. Now, caveat, I haven't talked to anybody who does clinical lab work, who maybe is looking at mineral content and whether or not people are doing the full 40 drop protocol that they recommend, or if they're doing a little, or if they're doing none. So I could be totally off base on that, but just as a tool to adopt the practice, because if I don't like it, I'm not going to do it. If it tastes bad, I'm not going to do it. I don't care how important it is for me. I'm just, 
can't well, do it. Compliance is huge. Like I, I just won't do it. My patients, if I can't get you to do X, Y, or Z, then we have to do a workaround. And so, yeah. you know, much and like, point, and I know most people don't, they're just like, I don't know. Somebody told me to do it. So I'm going to do it. I know why it's important and I still won't do it if it tastes bad. <laughs> right. So Which this is where, sense. yeah. So this is where I'm like, look, if you want to do a drop, great, do a drop and do a drop all day in the water that you drink all day. You don't have to take an eight ounce glass with 40 drops of trace minerals that it just tastes like you're licking a metal pole. It's not good. It's not very satisfactory. It's not. It's yucky. <laughs> it's, I mean, I think of, and this goes to our seafood conversation. I love oysters. Oysters are very mineral rich. They're excellent. And they have that taste. They have that like slightly mm-hmm. metallic briny taste because they're so rich in minerals. And so I go out of my way to eat oysters they're rich in B12, they're high in zinc. And so I go out of my way to eat oysters. And I certainly know not everybody has access or even likes oysters as a counter to like having to do mineral drops sometimes. It's all about balance, right? Yeah, it's all about balance. Well, Lara, as always, it is such a pleasure to connect with you. Let listeners how to locate you, your amazing courses, your list of book recommendations, how to connect with you outside of the podcast. Obviously, we'll reference all of your connecting points. What's the easiest way to reach out to you? Yeah, uh, certainly on Instagram. I'm there over at Environmental Toxins Nerd. I hope everyone can appreciate accurate my IG handle is. <laughs> so I'm on Instagram at environmental toxins nerd. And then people can just come check out my website, which is just my name, lauraadler.com. Um, I have a bunch of health professional courses that people can check out if they're interested in, in diving in. And I have a whole shop section. If people are looking for recommendations, whether it's for reading materials or mattresses or cookware or skincare products or household cleaners. I've kind of curated a list of some of my favorite products. So if people want to kind of cut to the front of the line and just say, just tell me what to do and what to get, that's why I created those lists. Such an invaluable resource. Thank you again for your time. Glad you got settled in your new home and we'll connect again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me back. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.